Tonight, I want to talk to you about the binding of Satan. I have a reason for doing this, which I'll not go into at the present time. I believe that Satan has been bound, at least from some standpoints. But I have become aware of a lot of people that do not believe that Satan has yet been bound in any sense, as far as that's concerned. They They seem to believe that if Satan is ever bound, he'll not be able to operate at all. In fact, he'll be put out of commission. An end will come to his existence completely in order for him to be bound. So I believe that Satan has already been bound. But if we do not believe that, do we believe that any of the works of Satan have been destroyed? If we do not believe that he's been bound in any sense, how could Satan, Satan's works, be destroyed in any way? If he has not been bound, do we believe that we can escape the power of Satan now? Do we believe in such a thing as having forgiveness of sins now? For if Satan has not been bound, there is no way that we could have salvation and the forgiveness of sins. It's only because Satan's power has been limited that uh, we are able to be forgiven of our sins. Can we resist the devil? The Bible tells us plainly to resist the devil. How can that be if there is no way that we can escape the clutches of Satan and his power and sin that he brings into our hearts and lives. Is it possible to resist the devil? Is it possible to be saved if Satan has not been bound in any way? As I said, it seems to me that many people think that if he's bound, that means he can't operate at all. But that... that That idea violates what Jesus said in Matthew, the seventh chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 13, enter in by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few that find it. This passage would suggest that it is possible to escape the clutches of Satan and we can escape the condemnation that he brings in our lives through Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. For what would be the meaning of Romans 6, Romans 1, 16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul said, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God, God's way of making us righteous, revealed. So that involves the binding of Satan. But the binding of Satan, as we'll see as the lesson progresses, is uh, it is a 
it is a limited, in other words, it's limiting the power of Satan rather than putting him out of commission altogether. Why can't the binding, the bruising, and the destroying of Satan and his works refer to the limitation of what Satan can do to us? I think we'll see that as we go through the passages of Scripture with regard to this. I'm going to begin now in Hebrews, the second chapter, beginning at verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus Christ, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, through death, through his death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus, through his death, he says, destroyed the power of the devil. That's very plain, isn't it? And I believe that that has to do with the very subject that I announced. You remember in the first promise made in the Bible concerning Jesus Christ, Genesis 3.15. God said, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, the seed of woman, shall bruise your head. But you shall bruise, you shall bruise his heel. Notice that passage says that while the seed of woman would would bruise the head of the serpent, still the serpent, the serpent seed or the devil would be able to bruise the heel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's that conflict that continues. But we have, human beings have a choice in that matter as to whether they're going to escape the the condemnation that Satan and sin has brought into our lives. Now let's go to the book of Romans. In Romans, the third chapter, do a little reading here. Romans 3, beginning at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law. That's talking about the righteousness that God brings to us, the justification that God gives us through Jesus. But now the righteousness, the justification of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets prophesied that it was coming. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. That's even bringing into focus those faithful people of the Old Testament period 
like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, they they live, many of those live faithfully to God according to the system that they were under. And they offered animal sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins, but those sacrifices were not complete. They didn't completely do the job. They were foreshadowing and looking toward the perfect one sinless sacrifice that Jesus Christ has offered. And so that's what he's referring to here, that even those in the Old Testament period depended upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And then also in Galatians, let's go to the book of Galatians, the third chapter. Begin, I'm going to begin reading in Galatians 3 at verse 10. For as many as of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Somebody raises the question, Well, why couldn't, why couldn't people be justified just by the law of Moses without Jesus Christ? I just made the point that those under the law still depended upon Christ and his sacrifice for their forgiveness. Why is that? Why couldn't that be? Well, what did they offer? What was offered for their forgiveness? Animal sacrifices. Were the animals the ones that sinned? No. Human beings sinned. And Jesus, that's why Jesus Christ became a man, came to this earth and took upon himself flesh as uh, God in the flesh and as, of course, as a man died this death in order to provide salvation for us. Otherwise, if we were going to be right in the sight of God, we would have to live a completely sinless life, not commit one sin in our whole life. Well, there's only one person that ever accomplished that one responsible being that ever accomplished that. And that, of course, was Jesus Christ himself, the one, and that was necessary for him to do in order to qualify to be the sacrifice for our, for our sins. And so this way of forgiveness of sins, if that's not binding the power of Satan, taking his power away from him, <laughs> how... What, what would you do with that? And I want to take us now to 1 John. 1 John, the third chapter. There are two verses here in 1 John. The third chapter, I think, that makes that abundantly clear. I'm going to read first verse 8 of 1 John 3. He who sins is of the devil. Well, we have all have sinned, but does that mean that we stay with the devil? No. Listen to it. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of Satan. Why was Jesus manifested? That he might destroy the works of Satan. Well, back up three verses to verse 5. 
And you know that he was, talking about Jesus again, you know he was manifested to take away our sins. Did you ever hear that old expression? Things that are equal to the same thing are equal to what? To each other. What did we just read? For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. What did Jesus destroy when he took away our sins? The works of the devil. You put those two passages together, that's what it's saying. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil when he took away our sins, forgave us our sins. How was it possible that he was able to do that? <laughs> he has power over Satan. He has bound. He has limited the power of Satan and what he can do to us. For Satan to keep us under condemnation of sin, he has to persuade us not to avail ourselves of the opportunity to be forgiven through that great sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. I want now to go back to the book of Matthew. Matthew this time, Matthew the 12th chapter. Let's uh, read a little bit about Jesus and, and demons and devil, the devil and the power that he had. I'm going to begin reading at verse 22 of Matthew 12. Matthew 12:22. Then one brought him, brought to him, then one was brought to him, I'll get it right in a moment, and then one was brought to him who was who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed, Jesus healed him, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? See there, some of the folks are grasping this. This is the one that's been promised, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. The Messiah that was promised to us. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He presents to them a problem they can't deal with, can't answer. And if I cast out, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But now listen to this. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, is that the way he did it? Yes. 
If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. There are those who say the kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament, in those Old Testament prophets, the kingdom that was prophesied that Jesus came to this came to this earth to establish by his in his first coming, by his first coming. Because of the Jews' rejection of Jesus Christ and they crucified him, he took the kingdom back to heaven with him and he's, go, he's not going to establish it till he comes back at his second coming. And now think about that. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you, just as he and John the Baptist had been preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's nearby. There be some standing here that will not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. And so he's making the point. I cast out demons by the power of God, by the Spirit of God. And this, of course, is proof, he says, that the kingdom of God is coming upon you. Or how can, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? There's our word now, binds. Has Satan been bound? Satan was the strong man in this picture here. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? That's exactly what Jesus did. And then he will plunder his house. And that's why Satan has been bound. But there's something else with regard to this, and that's the use of words. We just read about binds here, bound. But also we've already read that Satan, the works of Satan had been destroyed in Hebrews 2 at verse 14. Satan in this condemnation that he brings into our lives, that, that has been destroyed, it's the word destroy. But sometimes people think, well, Satan, Satan's still operating. There's still sin in the world. That must not be true. Well, that doesn't mean he hasn't bound Satan. As we said before, there's no such thing as salvation. There's no such thing as forgiveness of sins unless Satan has been bound in some way. So let's look at, let's look at a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians. I think this will help us to see and understand the usage of these words. In 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, beginning at verse, well, let's begin reading at verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, 
who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. This is the Apostle Paul writing now. And he's one of these ministers. He was an apostle that uh, of the new covenant, of the New Testament, that is. Not of the letter, not of the old covenant, that's the letter, but of the spirit, the new covenant. For the letter kills. The law by itself, when man sinned against it, it, it killed us. It, it killed those who lived under that law. That is, it condemned them. But the Spirit gives life. The gospel, that which Jesus Christ has brought, gives life, gives salvation, forgiveness of sins. But if, verse 7, but if the ministry of death written and engraven on stones, see, that's, where, that's what the Ten Commandments were written and engraven on stones. That's that first covenant. If that was glorious, he said, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. That's that same word as destroy with regard to Satan in Hebrews 2 at verse 14 that we read a while ago. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? The New Testament in that system is more glorious than that of the old. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness or justification exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. If you compare the two, he said, there is no comparison. The glory of the new covenant, the glory of what Jesus has brought us is much greater. For if what is passing away, what was passing away, Jesus, no. What was passing away was the old covenant. For, what, for if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Now, why am I emphasizing these passing away verses? That's the same original word in the Greek that was used in Hebrews 2.14, when, when it was talking about what Jesus did for us. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy. The word destroy there is the same word. Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, what's the point of that? I didn't bring it with me tonight, but you'll see in your pew, and I have, this morning I had the Old Testament teaching the book of Proverbs. I had a copy of the Old Testament with me. That, that Old Testament's still in existence. What does it mean that it's passed away then? Does it mean it's gone out of existence? No, it means it's no longer binding. It's no longer in force. That old covenant with its animal sacrifices, all that's no longer in force. It's been taken out. 
It's not binding. It's passed away in that sense. But, and it's important that we still have it, but not for the same purpose that it once existed. It's, it's not, it does not exist that we are under the commandments of that old covenant. That is passed away. Well, those sins that we committed through Jesus Christ, those sins have passed away. Well, how was that, a, how, how was that a possible that that could be accomplished? Because Jesus Christ lived that sinless, perfect life and died on the cross to satisfy the justice of God. That passage in Romans 3, we read that a while ago, didn't we? In Romans 3, when he talks about, in verse 26, that he might be just and the, and the justifier. Well, it's not hard to understand what it means to be the justifier. The Lord is the justifier. That him, but that he might be just. That he might be righteous. That he might be right in justifying some and not justifying others. Upon what basis has he made that choice? To justify some and not justify others. It's left to each individual, responsible individual. It's left to them to make the decision as to whether they want it. And whether they want that forgiveness. Whether they want to be loosed from the binds of of Satan and sin and condemnation that sin brings into our lives. Otherwise, somebody says, well, I, I don't, you know, I don't believe it's dependent upon the choices we make at all. Well, if not, why, do, why wouldn't God be obligated to save everybody? Regardless, Hitler right along with the most righteous person that ever lived. No. We, we have the choice to make. But now I'm going to read another passage or two here. In 2 Timothy this time, I want us to look at this passage. 2 Timothy, the first chapter, beginning at verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, Paul says, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Now, let me pause here long enough to talk about that just a little bit. People read that passage, and many conclude, well, see there, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing that human beings can do. There's no, he has no participation. God decides it all and does everything. No, that's not what that passage is saying. It's not according to our works. God didn't look down and say, those folks have been so good, I've got to do something good for them. That's not the basis of it. He knew we needed this. We could not provide it for ourselves. So that's when he, 
according to his holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Did you hear what that verse said? Who has, not will at some future time, who has abolished death. And death is all around us, physically and spiritually. But to those who have come to Jesus Christ, what about spiritual death there? To those who have come and obeyed the gospel, done what the Bible, New Testament teaches us to do in order to receive the forgiveness of their sins. What about them? He has abolished spiritual death for us. We now have life and immortality through the gospel of Jesus Christ, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles, he said. And so, another very familiar passage is Romans 6, beginning at verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Why did he die? To provide the grace for our salvation. Forgiveness. Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When? <laughs> when we're raised from that watery grave of baptism. Now listen to it, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man, what man is that, the man of sin? That old man, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We're not slaves of the devil. Once we've come to Jesus Christ, we're not slaves of the devil anymore. We're not slaves of sin anymore. We're slaves of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what grand slavery that is. But that's the term that's used. For he who has died has been, listen to it, has been freed from. Who's the man in this context that's died? The one that's been buried with the Lord in baptism. Somebody says, I thought it was by faith. Yes. Baptism is an act of faith. Paul said as much in Galatians 3, 26, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor freed, neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus, and if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed. 
and the heirs according to promise. What does that mean? Satan no longer has you bound in his clutches of sin and condemnation when we come to Jesus. Now that's at least part of the story of the binding of Satan. It's interesting to me that in Romans the 16th chapter in a complete what we discussed tonight is binding Satan so far as our salvation is concerned. But in Romans 16 at verse uh, 20. But now notice in verse 17 to show you the context. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. And then he goes ahead and says, gives the promise in verse 20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. From what standpoint? From the standpoint of false teaching. That's the, that's the context here. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And then in, somebody said, well, what about Revelation? Revelation, the 20th chapter. Yes, that's another place, this idea. Uh, Revelation, the 20th chapter, verse 2. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and, bound, and, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal on him, and he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. After these, after these things, he must be released for a little time. When that, in that passage in the Old Testament, he'd bruise the head of the serpent, Jesus would, but the serpent would bruise his head. What? How, how does that work? Well, it's not talking about time. It's talking about the fact that Satan would still be able, for instance, persecution, and teaching false doctrine, try to, trying to deceive people. That's no doubt bruising the heel of Christ and his people. But it's not, it's not destroying our eternal salvation unless we give in to say, well, what about this thousand-year reign? Well, people want to make that literal. But notice, he laid hold of that, that dragon, serpent of old. Is he talking about a literal dragon? No, this is a sim symbol of who? Of Satan. Well, if that's symbolic, why isn't the thousand-year symbol? What, what does it, somebody said? Well, what does the thousand-year symbolize? A complete, perfect deliverance from the power of Satan. Numbers is used in Revelation to picture perfection. So, sometimes the number seven is used to do that. Sometimes the number twelve. Sometimes the number twenty-four. Depends on the context. 
But you tell a person, you tell us that it'll be for a thousand years. But that's like in Deuteronomy. The Lord is faithful to his people to a thousand generations. Is that saying the thousand and first generation God will no longer be faithful to his people? No. It's a way of emphasizing the faithfulness of God. And this is a way of emphasizing the thousand years is not talking about a literal thousand years. It's talking about completeness of the blessings that God has provided through Jesus Christ. Satan is deceiving a lot of people in this world by thinking they're going to have a period of time in the future where Satan is going to be completely destroyed and he won't be able to do anything against us anymore while we live here on this earth. And then we can live a good life and please the Lord and go to heaven. No. And another thing that's involved in the premillennial doctrine is that God has a different plan of salvation for the Jews than he does for the Gentiles. You notice in these passages, like in Galatians, doesn't make any difference whether it's Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female. They're all one in Christ Jesus. God has the same plan of salvation for everyone. If you're subject to the invitation of our Lord tonight, and you want this salvation. You don't want to be bound by Satan. If you don't have this forgiveness, and if you haven't done the things that the Lord teaches very plainly that must be done, that's why the Great Commission was given. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's the beginning of the journey. But after that, we still need forgiveness from day to day, from time to time. If you're subject in either way, come right now as together we stand and sing. Blessed are they Blessed, blessed are they.